Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, man. I am honored, blown away, honestly, by having my friend Roger Rouge from... Man, you're in Colorado. I am, man. I'm at 8,500 feet, and we're recording on April 7th, and it's snowing. There's just something wrong with that, Brock. It's almost, it was 95 here yesterday. I'm jealous, officially. But you're in the mountains. You're where most people want to be. I am in clean air, clean water. It's God's country up here, man. Man, well, congratulations with that. I want to do you justice, my brother. I want to, I mean, from law enforcement to law enforcement, I love having guys on. I love having a man of your stature on here because I want to talk, I want to get down and dirty and talk about the realness of what we're doing. So if you don't mind, let me just briefly, so my viewers understand who I'm talking to. You are a certified human potential Institute coach. So basically you're a coach of I love working with first responders. And when we say human potential, that's really the essence of how I roll. So I think of my job in two ways in the first responder community. Number one, we all get stuck and we all get stuck. And then we try to solve the problem with the same mind that created it. And it's really impossible to do that. So I like to kick open doors, turn on the light inside a different room and let you look inside, see if that's a place you can go so that we unstick you. The second part of that is I believe we have the ability to achieve a higher degree of potentiality in service to community, whether we're retired or or whether we're still in service, I think we can all level up. And so my job is to kind of get the roadblocks and obstacles out of the way that would keep you from that. So number one, basically, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Yep. Right. I love that, man. So you are podcast host at Hero Talk. Yeah. So I started that a couple of years ago. And the reason I started it was pretty simple, Brock. I I saw a gap. I have this ability to, my mind, it sees pattern. I don't even have to effort at it. It's just the way my construct sees the world. And the pattern I noticed was suicidal ideation going up, disease, lifestyle disease going up in our communities, this suffering, the age of death staying the same, you know, 57 to five years after time. I'm like, well, wait a minute, man. All this money's going into EAP programs, peer support programs, chaplaincy programs, but the numbers, dude, they're the same. We're getting worse in a We're lot of cases, worse. especially suicide. So I thought, you know what we need, man, is is I'm, a, I'm not afraid to jump down woo-woo rabbit holes. What if I created a podcast that just stepped outside a convention and gave people a place to explore possibility? So it's sort of like going to a restaurant, man. You go to this great restaurant, big menu. You get to pick whatever you want off of that and experiment with it. See if it works for you. And most pick a hamburger. You know what I mean? It's the craziness <laughs> because it's what we know. And I what we it. don't know, Brock, what we don't know, you know, we're seen by society as these very brave people running into burning buildings and the sounds of shots fired. And we do do that. But I got to tell you, man, when it comes to interpersonal work, when I'm taking a look at inside myself, the fear I notice in our culture is profound. I'm trying to make that safer. You know, that's interesting. And you took me somewhere just now. You you triggered a thought. I remember I did a, a CPR call on a two-year-old baby and I, I the dad was a meth user, rolled over on the baby. The baby was face down. Mom comes home, wakes dad pulls the baby out. Of course, it's Arizona, hot trailer, baby's still warm. Mom gives 
calls 911, brings me out the baby. And I remember, you know, we talk about PTSD and we'll get into that a little bit, but I made a connection immediately when I held this baby and I rolled the baby over and I looked down, I saw my daughter, right? And I start getting emotional, brother. I mean, how many people do CPR while they're crying. I remember I was so glad when the fire department showed up because that transfer of, you know, here you guys go, it's yours now. But I went in my car and I drove around the block and I sat in my front seat and sobbed. I had no release. I had no way to handle it. I freaked out because that connection from my brain to that baby was my daughter. If, if I could get everyone to just do that one thing that you did, which was in that moment, you grieved and you had a moment of release. It doesn't mean there isn't more work to do, but here's the real challenge. And, and this was my, my paradigm. I muted myself emotionally to handle the chaos. I just turned off and became sort of robotic. You know what I mean? Now, the problem in that is twofold. Number one, I stuffed it all inside. So that's not good. We know, we know this is irrefutable. That's going to eat you up at some point. You're going to pay the price. But the really damning part of that was I remained emotionally muted in my personal life. So you went home, took it to your family, nothing. Nothing. Flatline, dude flatline after a while because it was the only coping mechanism I knew. I wasn't taught any other way. And I was raised by two people who were wonderful parents and stoic, mm. just hardcore stoic, Lutheran, Catholic church, no emotion. Life is stoic. That And my parents grew up in the great depression, man. They stood in soup lines. They knew adversity. And so their way of muting life was Life is muted. I got that as a kid. I got it as a culture and I brought it home to my family and it, it did not do my relationship any favors. Yeah. Now I want, I want the listeners to understand. I'm not talking to a newbie. I'm talking to a 20 year veteran or actually you were on 30 years, 30 years as a trainer, 20 years yep. actually in service before the strangest demographic Brock. The people I arrested stayed 18 to 24, and I didn't, brother, and I blew my back out. <laughs> so I'm talking to a guy that you've done everything from patrol to detective to street crimes, field training, gang enforcement, defensive tactics, EVOC, range master, mentoring coach. I mean, you've done it all. I'm not talking to a guy that's just two, two years on the street. I'm talking to a guy that has been is legendary and is still, I'm sure, has a little bit of effect from it. I know I still do. Yeah, I, I find myself from time to time still going into the emotional muting. And to give you an example of that, you know, now that I'm in retirement and I'm doing all these things to support the hero community, that's that's how I see all first responders as true heroes. I still find that life comes to visit me from time to time, right? It, and sometimes it's bringing a curb stomping with it. There's just times like that. When I am under threat, even with all the training that I've done, the meditation work, all the things, I I still go to my default, which is to emotionally mute. The difference now is once I'm through the crisis, I allow myself to grieve. I allow myself to feel and I work through it. So I'm no longer holding on to it. That's the difference. So you were, were you diagnosed PTSD or PTS? Yes. At the time I was diagnosed in the DSM as post-traumatic stress disorder. And then as we got further into the uh, treatment of that, it actually got upgraded to a label I really didn't want, which was complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is to say that there was not a singular event, but multiples that had cumulatively led to a break. So how are you coping with that today? Like other than meditation, because when those, for example, 
I had it last night, right? I'm working through it. I feel like I'm far removed from those events. I couldn't sleep last night. I mean, I'm going through every tactical two, my five, four, three, two, one, five things I can see, four things, and I'm going through it trying to shut my brain off. And all of a sudden I break out in these, I'm sweating profusely. Like my house, it has the AC on and I'm dripping wet. And I'm like, man, what is going on? And I start thinking about it. And I started playing the tape through, you know what I mean? Some of those events that I went on and I wasn't trying to play the tape through. I wasn't trying to rehash this, but it, but they came back, right? So here I am waking up this morning. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm super confused because I thought that stuff was behind me. And here they are just punching me for eight hours when I'm supposed to be sleeping. So now it's affecting me today. You know, I, I feel you on this. It's like peeling away the layers of an onion. And one of the most interesting experiences I had in my journey to where I am today, I, I jumped all in the woo-woo rabbit hole. And the reason I did it was I went and got EMDR, which is this eye movement desensitization reprogramming process. You do it with a psychotherapist. But I went through it back in the day where they didn't know what it was, how it worked, or even why it worked. They just knew good results were happening. So I was one of the first people in the country to experience it, which is Interesting. When I came out of that, I was so much better. It was like peeling away the layers of the onion. I went for a single event. Many more came out that I did not know I had stuffed down. But what I came away from that was, well, if this is experimental, I wonder what else might what be else? out there, yeah. right? So I found a Vietnam combat veteran who was also a fifth-generation Apache shaman. And this guy was a combat vet who was later recruited by the CIA into the remote viewing program where we psychically spied as a country on other countries. And you can read about this in many, many pieces of literature. It's called the MK Ultra, and there's a great book called PK Man, etc. But I studied with this guy for eight years in shamanic work. In the Apache culture, when they experience what we might call a critical incident, something very significant. Their way of dealing with it is they come together in community. That's key. The second thing they do is they tell the story and they tell the story. And every time they tell the story in support of community, not community going, oh, poor you. It's not the victim thing. They hold space for your journey, the learning that happens. And every time you tell the story, it reduces the charge of the story just a 100%. little bit more. That's the key. Man, Sharon. Well, you know, that makes me giggle because, because Roger, in the addiction world, we're doing the opposite. And what I mean by that is check this out. So I ran a recovery program for five and a half years. And when we started, we had our clients come in there and share their story so they could just do just that, get it out there. Because we, we feel... If the story's told, that monster that's hiding under your bed is out. Like it has no power. Okay? That's what our thought was. Well, what's interesting is we'd all sit there and listen to the story. And then a month later, we would hear them sharing the story again. And the story's changing. And then they told it again to another group. And it's changed again. And it's like it has now morphed into this like grandiose story. It's like... That's not even the story you told on day one when you had all those feelers. Now you're given this war story and it's changing. Right. Selective memory, right? Right. And then our minds look at the story from who we are today, which is not who we were then. And so the story changes. And what's interesting when you hold space in community and you have this retelling, if there's an embellishment or something changes, it's they called know. out immediately. 
call it out immediately and say, why did that get added? And then you explore it and you begin to deconstruct, reverse engineer how your mind is creating this victim story. What I love about the Apache culture is they are not enhancing your victimhood. They're allowing you to tell the story and then elders will comment on the wisdom of it. They'll help you learn and grow. And here's the key to begin to appreciate everything you went through as an essential component of who you have the potential to become. You can either wallow in that victimization or you can grow, you can gain strength. And this is where I diverge from post-traumatic stress as a diagnosed disorder. That word is like, well, we can only manage a disorder. You're stuck with that for life. It's absolutely not true. It is an injury, no doubt, but from it can come remarkable resilience, increased strength, growth as a human being, and then the ability to share with others to help them take their steps. That makes the experience beautiful, not something that had to be endured, not a why me. It's an empowerment. Once you accept that, sky's the limit. That's deep. Here's a question that that I want to pose to you. So with this knowledge, I mean, now stepping away from it, we see the power in this story. But can that happen amongst first responders in the situation they're at now? Because I look at briefings, okay? I look at briefings and I remember vividly the scenes that you saw, the bodies, the incidents, the fights, the shootings and all of that. And then you come back to briefing and you're groomed mentally by the men before you or women, right? And so it takes a moment to even understand what you're thinking. Like, you know what? I am. That did affect me. That was a hard call, but there's no place for that in law enforcement. At least from what I'm seeing currently, there's no, I'm not seeing that, but we have the capability as we have those briefing rooms. We have those moments where we could come together and communicate on that level, on a cognitive level to where we could all be together mentally and say, Hey, I need help. I'm struggling. This is exactly what the culture needs to evolve to. And it is so very slow to evolve. It's why I created the podcast and the work that I do, because I figure, well, if the culture's not going to evolve quickly enough, let's do what Buckminster Fuller said. When you have a big organization that you want to change, don't fight it, make it irrelevant. And if we make enough people aware of this and they come in centered, grounded, balanced, willing to say, I'm struggling a little, it becomes acceptable to the peers they influence. And slowly we begin to change. Now, I will say, uh, last year I was doing a training in Ventura, California. Ventura is an interesting community. It's a combination of really rich and not so rich, gangbanging, hardcore. Like it's a pretty rough town in some areas, which is interesting on the coast of California. So I was doing a training in mindfulness and resiliency for that department. Had about 60 people in the class, good turnout, having a good time. And a sergeant came up to me after, and she was at about the midpoint in her career. And she said, I have a really interesting observation. She said, the older officers in my department, the guys that are 15 years plus toward retirement, they think the new officers coming in are a bunch of pussies. They're weak. They're not going to make it as cops. And the young people coming in are going, geez, these old guys are so grumpy and cynical. And, you know, but she said the one thing that the, I guess what we're talking about here are mostly the millennial generation that's in new. And she said that the unique thing that they're bringing is after a call, it is not uncommon where the new officer, newer officer will come up and say, Hey, Sarge, that was kind of a heavy call. Do you mind if I take a minute and call EAP? I think I need to talk this one out. 
And so I got God bumps. That's what I call them when I get my goosebumps. I got God bumps all over my body because I thought, oh my goodness, this is the cultural shift we've been waiting for. Now that's one department. It's anecdotal, but I think we're going to begin to see the shift. Good. I like that. And that's what I was going to ask is it's got to start in the academy. In reality, it needs even needs to start before that, like within our homes, that it's okay. And I, I raised the son and I wanted to be tough. I raised the daughters, four of them. I wanted them to be tough, but I also want them to be able to communicate and communicate. And what I noticed then is with these calls and PTSD, there's two things that I learned as a takeaway. And maybe you can steal this or maybe you've heard this, but I really like it. Number one, we have this transference. We believe that the whole call is ours. Like it's our fault. Does that make sense? And so, so what's really critical is I need to admit, number one, that it happened. An event happened in my life that has caused some mental trepidation, some difficulty understanding and putting things in play, you know, like that baby that died in front of me. But I saw other calls that were just as catastrophic that had zero effect on me, right? Because I didn't have that connection. So what's important is for me, number one, to identify that there was an incident that happened in my life, but I can only take what's mine. I can only own the part that's mine. I can't I can't own the fact that that father killed his wife. I can't own that. I can own from the time that I got there and what I did, that's mine. I can own that and I can work through that. But what happens is we try to wrap ourselves around the whole incident and it's so big and universal. It's like, man, how do I grasp that? How do I work through that call and that incident in my life to make myself okay? Because it's not, right? Brock, you bring up such a good point where we we take on so much and we think we're responsible for it all. I recently was chatting with a police chaplain, Carrie uh, Friedman, and Carrie was talking about how law enforcement officers are the most spiritual people on the planet, in his opinion. And he goes on to defend that. And he says, what is critical is that officers develop something beyond themselves to have faith in. He calls it an absolute value system. Now, an absolute value system could be a belief in a particular religious faith, or it could be, well, I don't believe in a particular religion, but I believe in spirit, that there is something beyond physical form. Or it could be, I believe in the tenets of our United States Constitution. I believe in applying that Constitution in service to community, even though I'm atheist in my beliefs. But the idea is having something outside of ourselves. Otherwise, we take it all on, and that's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. Yeah, I love that. What are we doing today? So I, I know before we started, I'm going to kind of give a glimpse into it. You said there's we need more. We need more than EAP. We need more than peer support. We need more. And so, and I'm looking at this, I'm looking back east. We just had a, uh, an officer jump off a bridge and commit suicide. And I talked to some people that are pretty close to him. And he had shared a lot of his concerns and griefs and stress on Facebook openly. And there weren't a lot of people running. There weren't a lot of people going to his aid. At least, at least that's the angle that I'm seeing. But what more can we do? Like, how do we reduce mental wellness? I don't like using the word mental illness. You know, I think that's a stigma we also put on people, but to help people mentally to get through what they're, what they're battling. You know, you had said earlier, it has to begin even before academies. Yeah. We've got to begin to drill in resiliency as a culture, just in general. 
I mean, this is every single man, woman, child should be working on resiliency practices. It should become cultural so that when we come in the academy, here's the expectation. This stuff is hard. When I went through the academy, Brock, we had a two-hour block on stress management, and it was taught by someone not an expert in the field who simply read from a learning domain. That was it. Uh, Okay. Why are we not weaving resiliency practices all throughout an academy? Why aren't we teaching something as simple as meditation? Why is meditation a four-letter word? Why do we freak out? And if something's been around for thousands of years in every esoteric practice we can name, meditation is also another word for that could be prayer. So why are we afraid of it? It's been around thousands of years. We've cultivated it to the highest level. Warrior cultures have used it forever in the Asian circles. And now special forces in the military, United States military, are required to learn transcendental meditation as part of their process. Why are we afraid of that resiliency practice? Why do we we reject it? Yeah, that's it. We don't understand it. We don't understand the power of it. So when we think about mental wellness, mental wellness must become part of our culture in terms of training and practice. And we all have to get a lot better at saying, you know, Roger seems a little off today. Uh, he'll probably be okay. As opposed to, hey, Raj, you doing okay, man? Can I support you in any way? You seem a little bit off today. Just that question can open the door and create the potential to intercept something before it goes too far down the road and we have somebody jumping off a bridge. I saw that in my life. My second year on the department, an officer uh, was running code and crashed into another police officer. They both went through the light at the same time. He T-boned him. They both lived, major injuries, but they both came back to work. And I remember the ribbing we gave that guy, the one that was at fault, the one that didn't clear the green light or the red light. He just, he just went through it. He was, you know, he was new, but I could see it in him, Roger. I could see the ribbing we gave him. Like, you know, we always, Hey, you're going to run that red light. And every day we harassed him. I looked at him and I saw it affecting him until he went home and killed himself. Right. Wrote a note to the department put all his uniform out, shined his shoes, his policy and procedures, his badge, his gun, everything laid out. Come get it. I'm dead. And I just remember looking back at that. I said, man, I got to do better, dude. I got to do better. I, I can't go into that. And it shouldn't take that kind of incident to change my mind. I want to be cautious and also let people know that we are all doing the best we can within what we know. It's about an evolution of our spirit to be able to see things in a new light. Playing the game of shame and blame, not good. Grieving, for sure. But then saying, okay, this was a mistake. How do I do better? That right there, Brock, if I could just encapsulate that in a little pill and give it to everybody in first responder community, just that alone would change the culture in less than one generation. This is why it's so slow to change because we have these indoctrinated beliefs that are not helping us. That ribbing, I participated in lots of ribbings and I took lots of ribbings. Oh man, yeah. But if you're in a fragile place, that's a challenge, right? And is it appropriate? Well, I think sometimes banter and playfulness is, but where do we draw the lines in the sand and where do we remain aware where it's appropriate and not appropriate? We've got to do a better job in evolving that way. And we use that humor as a coping mechanism right? I remember the call calls and you're like, oh man, did you see? And you're using that to, to make it okay in your mind. You bet. That resiliency. So tell me, Roger, if you don't mind, man, I mean, I don't want you to give all your, your, your secrets away. What are some things that just the general pop can do about utilizing some of these skills that you would teach? What's maybe one takeaway that we could have that uh, we could develop and put in our toolbox? Well, you know, I think that the, the biggest return on investment 
is, and, and there's so many ways to do things, but I really think the best return on investment is exploring meditation. And so there's really two ways to meditate. One, everybody already knows, and they have a lot of baggage around it, right? Which is, I'm going to sit quietly with my spine straight, my eyes closed. Maybe I stare at a candle flame. Whatever people think about that, that's one way. And I notice in the first responder community, because we have very interesting psychology, we have minds that are willing to not run from danger. So we're only about 2% of the world is actually wired that way where shots fired. Oh, good. Let's go. Everybody else is, oh no, man, it's elbow to asshole. I am out of here. You know, when we think about sitting quietly and like you said, all those thoughts last night were flooding into your head, right? It's really very difficult for a first responder to quiet that mind. It's not impossible but it's not necessarily innately natural. So it's something to overcome. So when somebody is thinking, I just can't sit in stillness like that, I hear that loud and clear. So we have meditation and there are many, many practices. I say, go experiment with different forms of it, sitting meditation, quiet meditation. There's many. Go find one that maybe works for you and experiment. But if it doesn't, go to moving meditation. Now, this is where people get a little bit lost. What is a moving meditation? Well, there's three primary ones that I know of that are very powerful. And I do all three because like you, I have a very quick, sharp mind that processes things really rapidly and likes to. It enjoys it. So the three that I do that quiet the mind, number one is Tai Chi. So I like a martial art form of Tai Chi. This is not a a flowery form of Tai Chi. It's very martial. And that suits the nature of who I am. I enjoy that. I've been a martial artist for 30 plus years. So Tai Chi is one because in the movements, they're so intricate, so precise. The mind has to focus on that. And it's parasympathetic. It's restorative to the central nervous system. So we balance out the load in the washing machine. Instead of being sympathetically dominant and slamming against the wall, we get rest and digest parasympathetic restoration. So Tai Chi is one. The other one that this will send shivers up the spine of several of our listeners is yoga. There is no downside to yoga, friends. Everything in your body and mind will improve, but it too is a gentle practice of moving meditation. And I recommend for first responders that they start with yin. Y-I-N or restorative yoga, because you don't have to hold crazy postures. What they do is they're resting postures that you relax into for several minutes each. And what you end up doing is parasympathetically restoring the body. So that's two. So my problem with that, my brother, is I'm out. As soon as I'm prone, man, I am, I'm out. I love it. And, I love it. And I love that because that's not a problem in restorative yoga. If nice. you fall into a real relaxation state and and start to doze a little bit, it's actually optimal because you're relaxing the body at the deepest possible level. And when the teacher tells you to move, very likely you're going to hear that and you'll move into the next posture. And if you're sitting there snoring, they'll just gently wake you up. It happens all the time. It's not a problem. So no fear around that. That's actually a sweet spot to be right in that place of just falling asleep. You are the most relaxed and the body opens. So no fear on that one. And then the third one uh, is one that many people don't think about. And this also comes from the Apache culture. Uh, It's also done in Asia in martial arts practices as well. And it's called Za, Z-A, Zen, Z-E-N, walking. We can also refer to it as conscious walking. Now, what that means is we go out and we get on the earth, not sidewalks, grass, dirt, earth. We take our shoes and socks off. So our bare feet connect with the earth because the earth has an electromagnetic field and we do too. 
And when we insulate ourselves from it, we don't get the benefits of connecting to that electromagnetic field, which we have shown, proven scientifically, is parasympathetically restorative. That's what we want. And then we do this. We walk at a pace that allows us to breathe through our nose. Breathing through the nose is also parasympathetic in and of itself. So nasal breathing, walking at a pace that allows us to keep that nasal breath going so we're very relaxed in our walking. And then we do this. We look at objects at different distances. We look at the cloud in the sky, the dog running across the park, the leaf falling on the ground, that rock over there, the mailbox. And by taking our focus and making it divergent, spreading it out, opening up our visual center, all those things become parasympathetically restorative. So if you're not into Tai Chi, that's a little too silly for you. If yoga is not your thing, take a walk, brother. Just take a walk and you'll get the same restorative balance. Man, that's good stuff. I like that. That's a good takeaway, man. Because we're all, that hits all levels. You know, what's interesting is, is I CrossFit for meditation. I know that sounds absolutely crazy to people like, what are you talking about? Your heart rate's going, but it makes me, anything that makes me focus on a task is good for me. My brain doesn't shut down. I'm actually going to try this yin yoga. Y-I-N, is that what you said it was? That's it. It's also known, um, a lot of yoga places will will swap the word yin for restorative to kind of get rid of the, the strangeness of the word or the baggage we might have around that. Uh, restorative yoga would be the same. It'd be the good. same. I love what you're doing. You just gave us three amazing tools. I've been blessed today, man. I've, I've Seriously, I appreciate you. We could go on this forever. I know that there's more tools. There's more that we can do. What I well, Here's some takeaways that I, that I had. We need to start early. We got to teach our kids how to be resilient. We need to teach our people how to, be, but we need to demonstrate resiliency as well. And I think that's why we're here. We went through it. Yeah, man. We went through it. I, and I haven't even talked about your addictions and all. I mean, I haven't even talked about that other stuff. And I'm just talking on a face value with PTSD and, and the struggle. And that, I mean, it's real, but where we've came from. Yeah, where we came from. And I want to make one other comment. So you had mentioned your CrossFit is your meditation. I hear you. It is absolutely because it requires your focus. And I used to do downhill mountain biking, uh, full contact martial arts, fighting, is another word we might use for that massage. And then the last one was I road raced motorcycles. Now, when you're diving into a corner at 100 plus miles an hour with your knee on the ground, the slightest hiccup in concentration, well, that's potentially fatal. So you're dialed in, you're in the zone, so to speak. And I think a lot of officers can relate to that zone where you're just kind of in that flawless performance. This mind quiets down and that is terrific, except those are sympathetically dominant activities. Now, while that's okay to a certain degree, many people in the first responder profession become addicted to the hormones of stress. So they do high-risk behaviors like I just outlined in their off-duty time in order to quiet the thinking mind, keep the demons at bay, right? And it becomes addictive. So there are many forms of addiction, but that's one of them. And the problem with it is it's more stress hormones flooding the body, meaning we're in sympathetic nervous system dominance at work. And then in our relaxation time, we're in sympathetic dominance still, and we're not restoring. We cannot keep that up. Exercise is great. Don't want to discount it. But unless we're counterbalancing that with parasympathetic restorative activities, there will be a price to pay at the end of that too. We just can't burn both end to the candle. What you're saying is we're never at peace. Right. We never Beautiful. get that that peace. Yeah. That's right. That's very true. You know, I may be there right now. Man, I got to look into this because I'm running so fast. 
that I'm not getting, I'm not getting centered, right? I'm not taking any, any me time of just peace. I'll offer this to your listeners because, and, and I'm not saying this is you, Brock, but it is a reflective question to think about. When we're running so fast, we might pause for a minute and say, huh, am I running from something? Am I running from something I should be looking at within myself? Am I afraid of something there? I have a good friend who's a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman, and he's a badass, this guy. He's just a man's man. His name is Martin Hahn, and I used to take some workshops from Martin who did a bunch of advanced warrior kind of stuff. And Martin's tagline is, open heart, no fear. Now, that open heart is also loving yourself deeply, narcissistically but deeply. And sometimes when we're going, 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 the reflection might be we're running away from something that we actually need to stop, get quiet, go inside with an open heart and face it. And then we evolve into more balance. It's all about balance. And friends, you might think, ah, this is not a problem for me. I could just go, 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 go. You sure can until you can't. And I promise you, you'll get messages from the body that will be alerting you to this truth before it shuts you down. I totally agree. Wow. I appreciate that, man. We've been fed. I'm going to invite you back on. I'd love to have you back on. I, I just think you have so much to give to, to us. You're very well versed in this and I, and I appreciate your message today. Well, it's a deep honor to be on your show, Brock, and knowing what I know about you, having you on my own podcast was a remarkable journey. I'm just so thrilled that more and more people are awakening and offering support outside of the system. I think the system is evolving. It's just awfully slow and it makes the work that you're doing profound in these shares because this will change and save lives. Period. End of story. A deep honor to be here, brother. Thank you. I invite you to keep chasing the base, man. There's always something bigger and better out there that we we are going to accomplish. For me, at one point in time, it was sobriety. Now it's to have the best marriage possible, beautiful family. So we're all we're always in pursuit of, of improvement. So thank you. I appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed it. Loved it, brother. Thank you. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh, weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.